and welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, the healthcare podcast where we talk everything value-based care with the top experts in the field. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care with Day Health Strategies. I'm your host, Emily George, and I'm here today with Nate Gagne of the New England Quality Care Alliance. Welcome to the show, Nate. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to start with just hearing a little bit about you and your background and how you came to Niqua. I definitely don't have uh, the traditional background of who you would see to be a CFO of a physician network. So coming out, I I went to Bentley uh, as my undergrad, so that that fits. That fits a finance and accounting person. But out out of Bentley, so when I was there, I wrote my own uh, minor in e-commerce back when it wasn't really the thing that everybody knows it to be today. So I helped write a cyber law textbook uh, with a, one of my professors in school, and I really knew that I needed to kind of differentiate myself in some way because I wanted to go into either investment banking or consulting back when I was in, in college. So so by happenstance, I was at the career fair and the Deloitte Consulting um, partner who was responsible for spinning up the e-commerce product line was the one that was like actually at a career fair because the accountant who's usually there coming to Bentley uh, was sick so he grabbed my resume and was in my suit and my resume and passing it out to everybody and he took one look at it he was like wait a minute because I never saw this so so he wasn't really talking to me about a job he wanted to meet all my professors and everything so I put him in contact with all of them and then he finally was like oh I'm gonna need people to do this work so so I ended up working for Deloitte in that in that line of business, and then that kind of cooled off for a while, and they asked me to move over into something that was more um, my education and my background of finance and accounting, and that was implementing ERP systems or, or accounting packages for companies. Uh, so so after doing that for a couple of years, I had, I had a bunch of clients that uh, couldn't afford the high billing rates at Deloitte, and they were good enough to let me out of some of my non-competes, so I kind of started my own grassroots consulting company that kind of grew grew every year for 10 years so I had I had a pretty good thing going on where I was doing process redesign and and helping support some of the systems that I had put in and start starting to implement some new ones and uh, that's when I really got a, uh, exposure to a lot of different industries I was in manufacturing companies retail companies and then I had healthcare companies and I actually ended up um, rescuing a kind of a behind budget soon-to-be-failed implementation of an ERP system at the physician organization at Tufts Medical Center, uh, got it back on track and kind of brought them live with their ERP system and then did a bunch of follow-on work for them. So so when I when I really decided, I, I met my wife, I knew I wanted to have a family and, and uh, knew that being chief cook and bottle washer and sales and doer and all that stuff that it takes to run your own business. Um, so I was thinking about what I wanted to do and and um, the CFO of, of the physician organization at Tufts was always like, oh, if you're looking for a change, uh, talk to me. So we, we developed a position, uh, director of financial systems, and I, and I took that role as my kind of entree into the Tufts Medical Center family. Um, and through that, I was doing that for like a year, building revenue cycle interfaces and, and basically making sure that their systems ran. And I even had a stint as, as a, kind of an interim controller and working with the accounting team. And then the, the CEO, knowing my background, asked me to kind of do an internal consulting project and go 
go to the corner of, uh, of the, the Tufts Enterprise at this really small, growing, growing side of the business that was New England Quality Care Alliance, and that how, that's how I got some exposure into NEQA. Then after I uh, delivered my report, I kind of split my roles and did half, half PO systems work, half finance and accounting work at NEQA. Um, until the the uh, then CEO Jeff Lasker had uh, asked me to if I'd be interested in coming on full time as the CFO and kind of uh, leading the charge into the future with with Nequa. So that's 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 why we ended up here. Wonderful, and and can you just tell us a little bit more about what the New England Quality Care Alliance is? Yes, yeah, so New England Quality Care Alliance, or you'll hear me refer to it as Nequa. Um, is a clinically integrated network comprising about 1,700 physicians across eastern Massachusetts. Uh, it exists to improve the quality and efficiency of clinical care and to secure contracts with health insurers that offer better terms than the physicians in our network could secure on their own. <clears throat> so when I first started working with NEQA, there were just over 1,000 physicians and their main risk-based contract was the alternative quality contract uh, with Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, when I mention risk contract, I'm really referring to a contract with any stakeholder paying for healthcare services that really differentiates payment based on outcomes, that both quality and, and um, cost-effective care outcomes. So Blue Cross Blue Shield was very early in structuring contracts in this manner back in the beginning of the 2000s. Now NEQA holds 17 different risk contracts of this type. Sounds like NEQA has really experienced a lot of growth. And what do you think is, is driving this growth? Yeah, so, so whenever I get asked this question, I really echo the comments of one of our past board chairs. Uh, she said that NICO was is the network where the physician voice still matters, and I really believe that that resonates with many physicians and really is one of the main reasons for a lot of our growth. We have a very inclusive uh, decision-making process with respect to our care delivery. This has been attractive to many in the physician community, and I believe it's one of the main factors for our growth. The market has also moved very much towards value-based care contracts uh, recently uh, where differentiated payments for providing high-quality, cost-effective care is uh, tantamount to the contract. So in Massachusetts, the commercial market was really led by Blue Cross Blue Shield and that contract that I referred to earlier. Uh, most of the country got introduced to these contracts through a lot of the Medicare Accountable Care Organization contracts originating in uh, President Obama's tenure. Another factor in contributing to NEQA's growth of patient lives we touch is the market's movement towards accountable care in the PPO market. So your listeners probably know the difference between HMO and PPO products. In traditional HMO managed care products, there's a requirement that you must select the primary care provider and that provider is the quarterback of your care and refers you to other care as appropriate. In PPO products, on the other hand, you largely are free from having to choose it, from not having to choose a PCP and really have wider network options. So one might ask if a patient can choose wherever they want to go, how is that really accountable at all? Well, they really uh, attribute patient lives to you um, a lot, in a variety of ways, most of which is dealing with where the plurality of services or where the most services were, were generated. So I'd really say like the, the growth was really in really what brings our physicians together, but also in the market's movement uh, towards the prolifer pro proliferation of really more government contracts and uh, more PPO contracts in the mix. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you mentioned the importance of the market proliferation in terms of the commercial Medicare and Medicaid spaces, and um, I was hoping that we could take a few minutes to discuss how 
each of these markets has developed and, and what some of the opportunities and challenges are that you see in, in both or in all of these? Yeah, wow, that's uh, that's kind of loaded. I definitely could go many, many directions with that question. It's, it's definitely a great one. Uh, I would say that the early commercial contracts that Nequa supported had a very heavy focus on quality metrics and less on the cost containment component. A majority of the programs and services that Nequa developed to assist our providers to perform in these contracts were heavily concentrated on quality at Nequa's inception. Given the wide proliferation of many electronic medical system records throughout the network in our broad geographic reach in our concentration of small practices in the community setting it takes a lot of resources to report on the various quality metrics that are incented in our commercial contracts this focus has been changing over the past few years led by the various government contracts and the national commercial payers as a bright light has been shining on healthcare cost containment these contracts are shifting more incentives towards providing cost-effective care while taking the stance that quality is really table stakes and if you slide back on quality metrics you'll get to keep less of the incentive that that's based on really your cost effectiveness that has made the topic of resource allocation really difficult you don't want to backslide on your quality metrics but you definitely have to start focusing on those elements that lower the total cost of care not to mention the patient populations in the commercial Medicare and Medicaid space are very different and need a very different focus. Like all of this isn't complex enough, the financial structures of these three different product lines are very different as well. Hopefully this gives a bit of a broader context to, mm -hmm. to kind of the question I think that you're asking. So when I refer to the commercial Medicare and Medicaid markets, I really refer to them as product lines a lot. That's how we think of them here. So would it be helpful if I explained a bit more about the financial structures and needed programs and services and a little bit more about the different populations uh, in these three product lines? Definitely. Please do. All right, great. I'll start. I'll start with the one Nequa has had the most experience with in its history, the commercial market. So Nequa providers care for over 150,000 patient lives under 13 different commercial risk contracts comprising both local and national payers and comprising HMO and PPO structures. Largely, all the NEQA providers participate in all of these commercial contracts. And as you can imagine, each one of these contracts has its own sep separate nuances mm -hmm. that makes kind of managing that a little bit difficult. And really, our providers want to treat all the patients the same way, and they, they want very different things than the, than the payer market wants. Mm -hmm. So we definitely have to navigate that a lot. So the commercial population is largely made up of beneficiaries of working age and their covered dependents. To fulfill its mission and perform in these commercial risk products, NEQA must develop programs and services to provide care for both pediatric and adult populations. As you can imagine, the challenges and opportunities are very different within these populations. There are many rising risk patients in the adult patient cohort with multiple chronic conditions that need to be effectively managed to keep them healthy. In the pedi pediatric population, there are different challenges. Although standard best practices to handle medical conditions in the pediatric population is certainly important, there's also a really big focus on behavioral health in the pediatric population. The cost structure needed to support a population health approach is different compared with a traditional fee-for-service structure. The commercial market understands this and has traditionally accounted for this additional need and infrastructure in their contracts. 
this is the funding that has been used since NEQA's inception to pay for technology investments and investment in people resources to maintain quality metrics and build out population health programs for both the adult and pediatric commercial population. Most of these contracts have downside financial risk associated with them, uh, meaning if the network is able, unable to care for the payer's insured population within a given budget, it will owe them money back at the time of what we call settlement at the end of the year. Not to mention that settlement is usually delayed by a year and, and our providers get fee-for-service money as they care for patients on an ongoing basis and they have to wait until the, the following year to get any of the settlements out of these risk contracts. Um, So as you can imagine, it's been necessary for NEQA to put aside funds in reserve from its early successes and its risk contracts in case there are deficits that emerge in, the, in, in any year specific risk contract performance. So maybe we can switch gears and, and talk a little bit about Medicare, because that was extremely helpful, what you described about the commercial space. Yeah, me Medicare, Medicare is very different. A lot of the, a lot of the contracts, um, structures are the same like they have quality and they have like budget-based risk in a lot of the Medicare products but it definitely uh, definitely has some nuances in the population and in the structures so <clears throat> as context uh, NEQA providers also care for 40,000 patient lives under three different Medicare risk contracts uh, we have a next generation ACO contract directly with CMS that goes through the centers for Medicaid and Medicare innovation and we have uh, two Medicare Advantage contracts administered through two different commercial payers. So unlike the commercial contracts, only a subset of NEQA providers choose to participate in these Medicare contracts. The Medicare population is largely made up of retired beneficiaries in their late 60s through their end of life. Uh, there's been a lot in the news over the rising costs of healthcare in this specific population as healthcare costs increase dramatically as you age. Many of the rising risk commercial patients in the adult patient cohort that we discussed earlier carry their chronic conditions into their retirement years where they become more difficult to manage, not to mention expensive. It is crucial to manage these conditions to ensure the least amount of hospital utilization. If beneficiaries end up in the hospital, it is important to manage their transition to a post-acute facility or back home in an effective way as to ensure they do not get readmitted. So much of the investment uh, the network is made in this population really comes in that care coordination and also in managing end-of-life care. Keeping all caregivers properly informed is critical in keeping the senior population healthy and out of the most expensive care settings at the hospital. Hmm. So <clears throat> unlike in commercial risk contracts, most Medicare contracts do not stipulate additional infrastructure for programs and services not paid under the traditional fee-for-service payment structures. So for example, if technology needs to be purchased or care coordination, care coordinators need to be hired to ensure the population has the lowest hospital emergency department utilization possible, investment would need to be independently made for these expenses in hopes that there is budget surplus at the time of settlement in the following year, like I had mentioned earlier, that could be used to reimburse that expense before uh, additional um, contractual benefit is paid out to all the other stakeholders. So there's been a big push in the Trump administration to accelerate the path to more downside risk on behalf of accountable care organizations. So re rewards in these big contracts uh, could be great and the stakes are high. 
Uh, on top of the risks associated with pre-funding your infrastructure costs, if an ACO must build reserves in the case deficits emerge, the capital needed to expand in these agreements can be substantial. In a market that started with commercial risk contracts, surpluses that have been built up over the years can be used to expand into downside risk within the Medicare population. But as I said earlier, all of our network mostly participates in the commercial population and only a subset in the Medicare population. So when you kind of cross streams like that, you have a lot of kind of stakeholder management and you have to really think broader as a network um, in order to where you want to go strategically to make some of those investments on behalf of all your different state, uh, network stakeholders. <clears throat> so most markets across the country are starting their risk journey with Medicare contracts. Now with the administration accelerating the movement to downside risk with these ACOs, I feel this could destabilize care for this population as access is threatened by deficits not, not being able to be repaid. Mm -hmm. Another likely outcome could be a government bailout similar to the, to like the too big to fail banks. Because when, when you think about it, if this whole um, ACO experiment only works if those who lose pay the bill and those who win get incentives for, for managing care. If those who are in deficit aren't expected to pay back those deficits or can't, then the whole real structure is really questioned. So it definitely, uh, it, it definitely is a worry as we move forward if the administration is successful in pushing especially smaller kind of provider groups and smaller systems into a large amount of financial risk. Sure. Well, that's extremely concerning, and it seems like there are a lot of opportunities there. And and before we, we sort of switch gears to some of solutions or next steps or some of the things that are on your mind, could you lastly just spend a little time talking about Medicaid and some of your your thoughts about um, how this is working in your in your organization? Sure. I would I would say that that this might be the last, and I would argue most difficult population. Uh, that Negro providers care for in value-based contracts, uh, but it's really important work. So Negro providers care for close to 18,000 patient lives under the Wellforce Care Plan Model A Medicaid risk contract established in 2018 as part of a massive reconfiguration of the Medicaid market in Massachusetts. Similar to the Medicare product line, only a subset of Negro providers choose to participate in the Wellforce Care Plan Medicare Medicaid ACO risk product. So when they transform the market, you could, um, as a health system, you could partner with a traditional managed care organization, like a health insurer, and uh, develop a product with them to go to market with, or you could partner directly with the state and what they call Model B. So when I talk about Model A versus Model B, I'm talking about we're in a Model A contract with um, Fallon Health as our healthcare partner in, in this market. Um, and some of the Model Bs go directly with the state. So wanted to explain that to your audience because mm -hmm. a lot of times it's it's tough it's tough to follow we use a lot of acronyms in healthcare so mm -hmm. uh, so the Medicaid population is defined based on income or disability criteria um, and this was expanded in Massachusetts a few years back when there was an initiative to ensure that all Massachusetts residents had health care coverage Mass Massachusetts utilized a federal grant given by the Obama administration before leaving office to provide delivery system reform incentive payments, what we call DISRIP for short, uh, for the purpose of transforming care for this population. The state has been successful in transitioning 85% of the mass Medicaid population into shared financial risk arrangements, either those Model A or Model B or, or some form of managed care that I was describing. 
uh, before. <laughs> the district dollars are to be used in a five-year uh, period as infrastructure payments to transition to this model in hopes that cost savings will emerge to sustain the funding and the programs that are being developed. And that five-year period has a declining balance, so the most money that we got was in the first year of the, of the program. There's been a lot of funding going into managing the social determinants of health in this population, as well as the behavioral health and substance abuse. Given the higher prevalence of homelessness and transience in this population, care coordination is very challenging. This population tends to be higher utilizers of hospital emergency departments, which is a high cost setting. It is a goal in many ACOs to ensure only the most appropriate utilization of the, ED, of the emergency department is seen. Yeah, so I wanted to discuss for, for a minute um, the, the financial aspects of the Medicaid program because I really do believe they did a, a wonderful job in rolling this out and I do believe their intentions of trying to care better for this population is, is, is a great one. Uh, they had a lot of people working a lot of, of really hard hours to transition into this model and I think they did a wonderful job. But as I look at how the financials are, are splaying out in the first couple years that we're in this agreement, I definitely have some grave concerns. First off, I had mentioned it earlier, the disrupt payments are at their highest at the beginning and when we're trying to transition to a care model and we're developing a model of care, it's really hard to get into that model of care and have one like eye at the door of how do we roll out of this if it's not successful. So I get that they want uh, this thing to be self-funding over time, but it's really hard to build uh, a long-term strategy with such a short-term cliff. So I really have some, some concerns over that. <coughs> <clears throat> then um, the performance of the budget-based risk contract was supposed to be the factor that would make this all sustainable, but through Q2 of 2019, the combined deficit of all the Model A ACOs in Massachusetts is $169 million. Um, if this performance continues for the rest of the year, the state will see close to $340 million in deficits. So there's 15 Model A ACOs, of which we're a part. We're, we're just about right in the middle of, of the pack in terms of performance, but 14 of the 15 are experiencing deficits. So if you see that type of, of um, broad-scale performance concerns, then to me that, that makes me want to look into the way that the budgets are developed and is this thing uh, being sustainable from, from the budgets that we're, we're given to care for the population. So we'll definitely all be... I know that there's a lot of eyes on that right now. I know the state's really thinking about it. I know they're, they're, they're going to do the right thing for this population, but it definitely is uh, something that a lot of us are, are looking at and worried about. What do you think is, is an what's the opportunity there, or what would you recommend for, you know, what's next with that, and, and given your experience, and what are you thinking? Yeah, so the, the way that they, they develop the, what they call the budgeted capitation rates is, uh, the state works with, with actuaries and they look at past historical data and they look at trends and they develop. So the state has, uh, has multiple what they call risk categories. They have like healthy children, healthy adults, disabled children, disabled adults, and they have a lot of region. They give you a budget per region because all care is local and it, and it definitely matters uh, the population, uh, how much it's going to cost to care for them. So I think that, that there needs to be some... Um, collaboration with a long-term plan around this population with the state. So I think the state has some 
uh, views on where the trend should be for healthcare expenses. In really, in reality, the trends are a very different thing. If you can imagine everybody's building new care models to give better care for this population, it's it, it makes sense to me that utilization would actually go up at the beginning in order to have longer term benefits. But if they're showing really big decreases in expense trend in the budget development in the early years at the same point that we're ramping up a lot of the really good utilization that's gonna cause financial benefit in the future, there's really a problem with our time horizons between us and, and I think what the state and their actuaries are looking at when they're, when they're putting the budgets together. So I really think that more dialogue around that and making sure that the slope of those curves between us and, and the state really line up so we can all kind of be on the same trajectory as we go forward. That makes a lot of sense, and it's 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 interesting just to hear some of your thoughts being on the inside here and, and seeing the how all of this is playing out and working together. Um, before we, we close out, is there anything else that you would want to share about any of the things that we talked about? Like I really do believe as an industry we can do better. I, I chose healthcare coming out coming out of my, my consulting when I had uh, a few different industries that I had offers for and, and, and really did work with because I really did want to be part of the solution. So we have to look inside of our industry and I, I, I always um, try to look outside of my industry for solutions. I think we have a lot of we have a lot of technology concerns in healthcare interoperability and stuff. And when I look at like even like the banking industry, like they've figured it out. Like like nothing has to be more secure than your money, right? So healthcare records are the same thing. So can we can we innovate by looking outside and what other industries are doing with with AI or with some of their technology concerns and, and really bring those into healthcare and really really make make good change there because we really do always have to remember why we all chose this industry really the patient is is always should be at the center and we should be striving to to bring empathy and excellence in every interaction wonderful thank you for just sharing all of your insights with us today and thank you for being on the show Nate thank you If you are interested in learning more about accountable care or how organizations can succeed in today's healthcare system, please visit our website, www.dayhealthstrategies.com, check out our blog, follow us on Twitter, and join our mailing list. We regularly post content relevant to current healthcare issues and overcoming challenges in delivering value-based care. Unlocking Accountable Care is a production of Day Health Strategies. Direction and editing by Max Blumenthal. Additional support and research by Emily Eibel and Nico Lehman. Our producer is Rosemary Day. A special thanks to Purple Planet Music for the use of their songs.